All right, everybody, welcome back to another Baseball America podcast. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. I am joined today by Kyle Glazer as we run through our top 10 podcasts throughout the offseason. Today, we're going to be diving in on the Chicago Cubs. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's nice to be in the analyst chair as opposed to the host chair. It's fun sometimes, but I like to change it up. And to be honest, it's a little more fun to be analyzing the players as opposed to just be asking question after question. Plus, I feel like I can be a little looser sometimes as the host. It's kind of rigid. You get a little formulaic. I, I can be more myself in the analyst chair. So I'm looking forward to this. It's funny. Yeah, I was thinking about that this morning of, you know, having done both over the last couple of days, hosted some stuff, and then also, you know, been in the other side of things as a guest and, and then, you know, as another analyst. And it's so much easier. <laughs> it's much more laid back. So I totally agree there. But let's dive in a little bit. Cubs, uh, definitely a different type of season than we've seen over the last half a decade, uh, you know, since they became a I guess, championship caliber club. Um, we saw that core, the young core that sort of developed over the last few years be jettisoned out of town and there was a quite a bit of talent that came back so it's a much different cub system than one we would have broken down last year yeah a lot has changed uh, if you start with the u darvish trade before the 2021 season they traded him to the padres for four prospects and zach davies then you move over to the trade deadline in a 15-day span leading up to the deadline they traded nine players off the big league roster and as you mentioned it was headline guys chris bryant anthony rizzo javier Baez, craig kimbrell as well as some complimentary pieces and received back 10 prospects plus nick madrigal and cody hoyer and those deals so now you look at it just comparing this farm system entering this year compared to last year pre-darvish trade they've added 14 new prospects into the system then you add in the 2021 draft picks as well guys like jordan wicks and james triantos who made some really good first impressions this is a system that's much much better uh, they were the number 22 farm system entering last year again that's pre u darvish trade they're going to be higher this year i don't want to reveal exactly where our organization talent rankings are still coming out but again anytime you add 14 prospects and trades plus uh, a full collection of draft picks your system's going to look very different and much better of course the counter to that is the major league team got worse the cubs went 71 and 91 last season it was their first losing season in seven years and you know as we talked about this was a tremendous run arguably the best in cubs history and certainly the best in cubs history in the modern era they made the playoffs five times in six years made three straight nlcs's won a world series i mean it was an incredible run and this is just part of the natural cycle of things guys age out move on in free agency and trades have to be made to kind of restock some things and that's just where the cubs are right now so the organization has avoided using the word rebuild let's be very very clear here anytime you trade away 10 key players off your major league roster in about a seven month span it's a rebuild they are in a rebuild but you can see where there's some promise here it's just going to take some time yeah and there's been some changes in the front office as well um they've gone in a different direction and i think the thing that really sticks with me from all the deals that were made is that they went really so young with a lot of the talent that they had acquired. Um, so, you know, just picking through some of that, that talent, I think it's sort of interesting maybe before we start off here, there's a lot of high variance within this system. Um, and I think to me, as I go through this, you know, even beyond the top 10, the top 30, et cetera, um, there's a lot of guys sort of within that grouping that 
it's feast or famine. This guy could either be, you know, a potential star at the major league level or maybe not make it at all. There's no question. This was a strategy that it really started with the Darvish trade. The Cubs trading their ace got four prospects, three of whom had never played a professional game. And the fourth, the ace in Santana, had only played in the rookie levels. And that sort of set the tone for a lot of their deals. You look at a lot of the guys they acquired. Again, you look at Kevin Alcantara, you know, you look at Alexander Vizcaino, you look at Pete Crow Armstrong, you look at so many of these guys they acquired in these trades. It was guys who really had not played above the Class A levels and in most cases had not played above the rookie levels. There were, of course, exceptions. We mentioned Madrigal and Hoyer in the major leagues, uh, Caleb Killian, double A, but it's a lot of really, really young players. So you have this high variance system, as you talked about, where on the one hand, yeah, you could see a lot of these guys clicking and becoming really, really impactful players, but there's also a very high likelihood a lot of these guys won't get out of double A. You know, if you have five really good players in rookie ball, odds are only one of them, if any of them, are going to become impact everyday major leaguers. And maybe you get a second guy who's kind of a contributor and the other two or three are likely going to drop off. It's just the nature of prospects. It's the nature of attrition. And it's a huge jump from rookie ball to just say double A, for example. At that point, raw tools don't matter. They have to translate to skills. And, you know, some guys are able to do that. Some guys are not. So there's a lot of really, really interesting players in the system and a lot of reason for Cubs fans to be optimistic. But this kind of leads into this is going to take some time because these guys are so young. You know, you look at the upper levels of the system. Brendan Davis got to AAA last year. Caleb Killian got to AA. But there's really not a lot in the upper levels of this system. It's all concentrated in the lower levels which means this is going to take some time before the Cubs are competitive again. I go back to a study I did for us at Baseball America in 2018, where we studied rebuilds and how long until teams that undergo this type of rebuild, this tear it all down rebuild, make the playoffs again. The first thing to keep in mind is that for every rebuild that has worked, there is one that has not worked. So it's a 50-50 shot this works. It's not a guarantee. On top of that, when it does work, it takes a minimum, an absolute minimum of four years from the time the final pieces are traded away until the team is in the postseason again. Uh, You look at the Pirates, they traded away their final pieces in 2009. They were in the playoffs in 2013. The Astros traded away their final pieces in 2011. They were in the playoffs in 2015. The Athletics and Braves tore everything down after the 2014 season. They were back in the postseason in 2018. And I see some Cubs fans kind of talking about, oh, you know, we could be competitive again in 2024. Realistically, the earliest this will hit, the earliest the Cubs can realistically expect to be back in the postseason is 2025. And that's if everything goes right. And it's just because when you're talking about a team that's trying to come up from a 71-win season, the amount of talent you need to become a playoff contender again, it takes four draft cycles. It takes four international signing classes. It takes four years of trades and it takes four years of development to get enough guys up to make a competitive major league roster. So this is a really, really interesting system, but there's a very, very high risk that it doesn't work. And even if it does work, this is not going to be a short-term turnaround, even with the Cubs' financial resources. Again, signing big free agents during the rebuild doesn't accelerate it. It just means the window opens. You have to do that for the window to even open after that four-year time frame. So right now, if you're a Cubs fan, I would say 
throw in the DVD of the 2016 World Series championship run, pay attention to what's happening in the minors next two or three years. If this works, it's really not going to be until 2025 before you can say, okay, maybe the Cubs are a playoff contender again. This is going to take time in large part just because of how young these guys are. Yeah, and they're you know ultimately going to end up picking fairly early this year and then in the probably in the coming years with you know how things are and i think one other part to note here is because they were competitive because they made trades to be competitive a lot of the young talent um that was sort of behind baez and rizzo and bryant was traded away so it wasn't an incredibly deep system either so it wasn't like you know they had the ability to sort of rebuild on the fly maybe backfill some of the lower minors and had some guys to replace them in the upper minors level there wasn't a lot of that so um i guess now let's dump jump in a little bit to there's one system. thing i do want to add real quick oh, you sure. mentioned that you know trading Aloy jimenez and glaber torres are kind of examples a and b of that it was totally worth it that's what you have to do mm-hmm. again i think any cubs fan if you told that's them right. hey we're going to win a world series but then there might be some lean years after that every single one of them would have taken it. And really, if you told them you had a competitive five or six year window, but after that, the next four or five years might be lean, every single one would have taken that. And the other thing I do think is important to point out, I just made that whole spiel about really not being a postseason contender again until 2025. That could accelerate if MLB expands the postseason. So that is one thing to consider here. And one thing we're going to have to take into account that if it becomes a 12 team postseason or a 14 team postseason, that could accelerate it. But if it stays in its current 10-team postseason format, that's where the four years and in 2025 being where the window opens, that's where the timeline kind of comes into effect. Now, here at the top of the system, I wanted to dive in a little bit now. Uh, we have Brennan Davis, obviously a holdover from before. Um, been the top prospect now, I think, for two years running, correct? Or is it three? Um, still younger, outfielder, very talented. Um, a lot of helium you know, especially in the public space, but there is some volatility there as well. Uh, He's an interesting prospect and not terribly far away from the major leagues. So he could be sort of the first wave of of talent to come up to the major league level. Talk to me a little bit about Davis. Yeah, this is actually his first year as the number one prospect in the system. Uh, Years before this, Braylon Marquez and speaking with evaluators, both inside and, and outside the Cubs system, what was very, very clearly number one, you can find a few people who go one and one A with him and Davis, but for the most part, Marquez was clearly one. Uh, we're going to get into Marquez and his situation later, but Brennan Davis jumping from high to AAA this year, especially in light of the fact he had got hit by a pitch in the face during spring training, suffered a concussion, missed some time. The fact that he was able to bounce back from that, still get up to AAA, win MVP of the Futures game, just a really impressive testament to his ability, his work ethic. And when you kind of draft the quote unquote raw athlete type, he was a multi-sport guy in high school, uh, really in a lot of ways known for his basketball prowess more than his baseball prowess. This is what you hope happens. He used that athleticism and he's a very, very smart kid, very, very cerebral kid. Uh, He was able to kind of translate all that very, very quickly to professional baseball. He's hit for average, he's hit for power. And again, we saw the average go down a little bit. The strikeouts go up a little bit as he moved up levels last year, but that's to be expected. That's natural. This is a really, really good athletic player who just keeps getting better, who keeps adjusting. He was at the alternate site in 2020, held his own against older competition. So this is not someone who's a, a super polished product. We have to keep in mind He's only played 167 career games in the minor leagues due to injuries and the pandemic. So there's still some development left. It's not a finished product by any means, but 
you know, you can dream on 260, you know, 2020. He's growing into more power as he gets stronger and matures more. You know, he walks a decent amount. Again, there is some swing and miss to his game, and that is something that is sort of an uncertainty right now. But overall, you look at the athlete, you look at the track record of him making adjustments quickly, you look at the mental makeup, you look at the physical ability. There's a lot to be bullish about here. And, and he really separated himself as the clear-cut number one prospect in the system this year. And frankly, one of the top 25 prospects in baseball. It's hard to find guys who are this athletic with this power, this speed, this defensive ability, and the growing hitting ability that he's showing. There's not many guys like that. And there's a lot of reasons to be excited about Brendan Davis. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think you hit the nail on the head there where, you know, regardless of, you know, how much we may try to nitpick this or that about the potential hit tool, the overall skills are really good. And there's few prospects like this that sort of match up with that skill set at that level. So he's one of the top guys in baseball and sort of leads the system here. Um, we'll get into Braylon Marquez in a minute. I wanted to sort of briefly touch on Christian Hernandez, uh, if I could, and sort of mention him at number two. Um, he was an international signing a couple of years back, um, you know, and has rose fairly quickly already uh, in terms of you know, how he's viewed value-wise in the system. So uh, you're typically, um, from my experience, uh, a little more apprehensive with younger prospects. So what has you excited about Christian Hernandez? So there's a couple of factors at play here. Uh, you mentioned, you're going to laugh, the, the 2020 time warp kind of messed with our perceptions of time. It was actually only this year he was signed, January 2021. Uh, or I guess that's last year now. So he came in with, with a lot of hype surrounding him. The Cubs signed him for $3 million. It was the franchise record for an international amateur signing bonus. And he was pretty solid in DSL. Went out, posted OPS over 800, stole some bases, nearly as many walks as strikeouts. There's a lot of promise here. He's an explosive athlete who's also a polished hitter. And a lot of times, especially when you're talking about guys in the lowest levels, you see guys who are these great athletes, but their baseball ability is a little behind. Or guys whose baseball ability is really, really strong, but maybe they're not that athletic. And he's both. There's a lot to be bullish on here. Great bat speed, gets on plane early, keeps his peril through the zone for a long time, effortlessly drives the ball, uses the whole field. And I mean, he's 6'2", with a lot of room to continue getting stronger. There's just a lot to like. And one of the things that was nice, too, is he showed the ability to adjust. Got off to a slow start in his pro debut and really caught fire at the end of the year. Just made adjustments, figured out some of the things he needed to do to be successful at the plate, and he did it. High baseball IQ is there. So you start checking the boxes of, okay, athleticism, polish, high baseball IQ, ability to make adjustments. It's everything you really want to see from a young, young prospect. In terms of him ranking number two in the system right away, that was a combination of, A, just, just simple reporting, talking to lots and lots of people within the Cubs organization. It's like, yeah, this this is our number two guy. It's clear cut. Obviously, evaluators who are stateside didn't get a chance to see a lot of him, but there's still you know just people who saw the reports and, and maybe did some video work. They were impressed with what they saw. So yeah, just the reporting, you know, you look at, again, you check all the boxes, you do the reporting. It's like, yeah, this guy's number two. And I will say some of that is also a function of how many of the other Cubs top prospects you think about in this range were hurt. Braylon Marquez missed the entire season. Pico Armstrong, the acquired for Javier Baez, got to play only six games before he had a 
torn labrum in his shoulder that required season-ending surgery. Miguel Amaya is someone who was scheduled to be higher on the top 10, but he had Tommy John surgery after missing most of the year with elbow issues. So there's a little bit of context here for why he's so high that's independent of him, just the rest of the top-level talent in this system, the injuries that afflicted them. But on his own, there is a lot to be bullish about. And, and ultimately, it became clear, just taking everything into account, that this was the number two prospect in the system at this time. Let's jump in a little bit to some of these injured players that you were just talking about. Brandon Marquez at number three. He was the number one prospect, as you mentioned uh, you know, last year at the beginning of the show. So talk to me a little bit about Marquez. What was the fall? And you know, what is there to still be optimistic about? And what are the concerns? So I did three systems for us at Baseball America, the Mariners, the Dodgers, and the Cubs. Of all three systems, Braylon Marquez was the hardest player to rank, just because this is someone that at his peak has shown the ability that had scouts buzzing about him as one of the best pitching prospects in baseball. But I want to go back to 2019, and he spent most of that year at South Bend and got up to Myrtle Beach. And at that time, you had a 20-year-old left-hander sitting 97-98, touching triple digits with ridiculous ease, a plus slider that was just disgusting, an improving changeup, and his control kept getting better over the course of the year. Everything was trending in the right direction with his control. He was durable, uh, pitched over 100 innings that year, you know, sturdy body, a bigger guy, not that premium athlete you might want, but Again, the stuff, the control trends, the durability. I can't tell you how many times during the 2019 season, people reached out to us like, yo, you got to see Braylon Marquez, particularly at the end of that season once he got to Myrtle Beach. And then 2020, he went to the alternate site, pitched really, really well there against older competition, got called up the final day of the season and was just not ready for it. It was very, very clear. Again, he had not pitched above high A. And even that, it was only 26 innings at high A thrust him into the majors, and it just did not go well. Um, walks, wild pitches, things spiraled on him pretty quickly. And But again, he just wasn't ready for it. No harm, no foul. And he was really the clear-cut number one prospect in the system entering last season. Again, I talked to evaluators both inside and outside the Cubs organization. The stuff, the way the control was trending, how he performed at the alternate side, it, it really was pretty clear-cut. And then this year, he just didn't get on the mound. It really started before spring training. He contracted COVID-19. That put him through protocols and delayed his ability to get on the field at spring training. And then once he did, when he was ramping up, suffered a shoulder strain, and it just, it just never went away, the shoulder troubles. He tried to ramp up multiple times throughout the year, had to abort the rehab attempts every single time. And now you're looking at a guy who hasn't pitched in meaningful games since 2019, and we're about to enter the 2022 season. So what do you do when the guy has been lights out when he's been on the mound, but just A, in part due to circumstances that are not his fault, and then B, a shoulder injury, which is always scary, but it does happen. Where do you put him? Ultimately, I stuck with the talent because pitchers get hurt. It happens. And you look at what he's capable of and what he has shown himself to be capable of. You're still going to give him a little bit of benefit of the doubt. Again, he's still 22 years old and you're not going to find the stuff that you saw him show us. And if the control games are still going the right direction, there's still a chance this is a power armed number two or number three starter, but there's just so much uncertainty regarding the health of his shoulder. And it's that 
if this stuff comes back intact, if the control keeps improving. There's a lot of ifs here. Ultimately, um, gave them the benefit of the doubt. The talent level is just so high. And we talk about some of these young Cubs prospects. People are like, why isn't you know, Kevin Alcantara or some of these other guys above him? I mean, if you take a step back, Braylon Marquez was drawing every bit as louder reviews and frankly louder reviews than they were at higher levels when he was their age or close to it. So I still want to hold on to this, see what the 2022 season holds. And if he comes back and he just can't stay on the mound or things have gone sideways, we'll adjust. But but the last on-the-mound performances we have from Braylon Marquez, again, putting aside the, the major league debut he just wasn't ready for, it's lights out. And I don't think you should be so quick to forget that. Absolutely agree. And, you know, the Cubs have long struggled to develop pitching uh, from within the system and something that's gone on for a long time. It was certainly the case under Epstein, despite all the success that they had at the major league level, they really couldn't develop pitchers through the pipeline. We have three other pitchers here in the top 10. Before we get into Pete Coral Armstrong, I thought it was a good idea to maybe jump into these. So, you know, between Marquez, between Wicks at five, Killian at seven, DJ Hers at nine. Um, do we potentially have a couple of starting pitchers among this group? Talent-wise, the answer is yes. You look at DJ Hers, he had a really, really good season last year. Again, the control was a little wonky at times, but the stuff was unimpeachable and the control got better as the year went on. Caleb Killian, who they acquired from the Giants in the Chris Bryant trade, really was opening guys throughout the season while he was in the Giants organization, came over and pitched a little bit for the Cubs before uh, not pitching the final month of the season, but went back in the Arizona Fall League and was lights out. I was there for his six perfect innings with eight strikeouts in the AFL championship game. And Jordan Wicks was very, very highly regarded coming out of Kansas State. Uh, The Cubs felt they got a guy who could have gone as high as 10 picks earlier. And, And there are a lot of people out there who thought that, yeah, you know, there was a chance he could have gone in the, 10, 11, 12 range instead of in the 20s. So you have a collection of, of good pitching prospects, all of whom were slam dunk top 10 guys. And DJ Harris is at the bottom of this list in the top 10. You can find people in the Cubs organization who will tell you he should be atop this trio. The talent level here with all these guys is pretty significant. It just comes down to how they develop it. You know, As you mentioned, the Cubs and their struggles to develop starting pitching. In a lot of ways, you can argue that might be what prevented them from being able to go win another championship, although I don't think anyone should ever consider winning, quote-unquote, only one championship a failure. But you know, you go back to that 2016 World Series team, it was John Lester, John Lackey, free agent signings, Jake Arrieta, Kyle Hendricks, guys they acquired in trades, uh, Jason Hamill. Again, no homegrown starters here, even when they were going well. So fixing that has been... Uh, a priority for this Cubs organization. And that's part of the reason they brought in Carter Hawkins to be their new general manager. He's coming over from Cleveland, which obviously has a tremendous track record of developing starting pitchers. So we'll see if some of the processes change and the hit rate in terms of developing these guys can be higher, but the talent is there for this to potentially be the group that least helps end this drought. Again, if you have four good pitching prospects, you throw Marquez in here, not all four of them are going to hit. It's just it's just the nature of pitching prospects. Realistically, one becomes a good starter, one becomes a good reliever, and maybe if you're lucky, you get a third guy to, to really pop for you. So there's going to be some attrition here, but I will say, having done the system this year and last year, the talent level of the pitchers in the system is significantly higher this year than it was last year, especially at the top of the system, I should say. Yeah, and they've done a good job of acquiring those guys. Before we jump into the back half here of the top 10, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, and we're back. Uh, we're going to jump into the back half of the list now, um, but we'll actually include number four, Pete Curl Armstrong, in this group. Talked a little bit about the pitchers before the break. Now I wanted to get into some of these young upside hitters. The Cubs have a lot of them, and some really exciting names as well. Pete Curl Armstrong, as we mentioned, we didn't get the chance to see him play in an affiliated game for the Cubs. Uh, Kevin Alcantara, Owen Cassie, uh, James Triantos, and then Reggie Preciado. Not all those guys are in the top ten. But it's a really exciting, high upside young group, kind of like we talked about at the top of the podcast. Yeah, and this is where, if you're the Cubs, kind of the, the core of your farm system, so to speak, is. It's in the complex levels, of low A, high A. This is a group that, again, we know the nature of developing as a prospect. It's very, very hard to go from rookie ball to an everyday major leaguer. And not all these guys are going to become the everyday major leaguers everyone dreams of. At the same time... These guys all have some pretty significant potential. And again, you just compare what this position player group looks like compared to maybe a position player group in previous instances of the Cubs top 30. It's significantly better. And these four guys were all new to the system this year. Alcantara, Casey, and Preciado coming over in trades. Triantos, a second round draft pick. They're all different, but they all can make impact in different ways. Uh, Starting kind of from the bottom up, Preciado... He's just a huge dude who's a switch hitter with good instincts. He's a shortstop now. He's going to move to third base, but there's a lot of sense that he has a chance to be a really good everyday player. He's a young player who still has to work on some things, tightening up his strike zone discipline a little bit, and he's not the fastest guy. He's slowed down a lot, but combination of bat-to-ball skills from both sides of the plate, good instincts. His dad was a longtime minor leaguer. He's performed very, very well, jumped straight stateside in his pro debut and really held his own. Sometimes he's a really, really promising prospect. Most evaluators see the potential, the upside, if you will, as a good, solid, everyday player, not above average or all-star type. But I mean, you need really good, solid, everyday major leaguers. That's a really good outcome and, and someone to be bullish on. James Triantos finished just outside the top 10. And he has a chance to be, when we look back a few years from now, 
maybe the best pure hitter in this entire group of top 30 prospects. Uh, ultimately, we did our best tools and you know, Hendrick Penyango got the nod as best hitter in the Cubs system, but Trantos was right there with him. The guy can just hit. It's a beautiful swing. It's balanced. He makes adjustments, strikes on discipline. It's all of it. It's you know, hard contact off the barrel to all fields. And it's one of those situations where, you know, defensively, his reviews were not great this year in the AZL. And he's this really good athlete away from the baseball field. He can do backflips. You know, he was a two-way guy in high school. He was a great pitcher as well. But that athleticism didn't really translate to the infield in terms of his infield play. That was something that came up a lot in calls with scouts. So there are some defensive questions. He's not a shortstop. His play at second base was was not great. A lot of scouts outside the Cubs system especially were very underwhelmed. And the idea is maybe he could go play third base. Uh, but even though he has this arm strength that allowed him to get into the 90s off the mound, it, it didn't really play that way on the infield, uh, the arm slot, just the way everything worked. So there's a lot to work on defensively. And some of the questions about on-field athleticism and positional profile for a player in rookie ball. That's ultimately what pushed him outside the top 10. At the same time, if you can hit, someone will find a spot for you. And I will not be surprised if James Chirantos a year from now is in the top 100. Uh, When you get your prospect handbooks, you'll see, even though I just listed all those concerns, we we put a pretty big number on him as his potential. Again, it's extreme risk because a lot of things have to happen. He's in rookie ball, but to put the number I put on him for a non-first-round high school pick is a testament to how good we think he can be. So don't take the fact he's not in the top 10 as some kind of knock against him. He's a really good player who just has a few more questions than maybe some of the other guys uh, when you compare him to some of these other youngins. And that leads us to Owen Casey and, and Kevin Alcantara. Casey, his power, and we knew this coming out of you know his Canadian high school. The Padres drafted him, and he had shown big pop. He hit a long home run off a double-A pitcher at the Blue Jays Spring Training Stadium off the batter's eye during an exhibition with the Canadian national team. And what he showed this year in his pro debut was – he can get to that power. This isn't a guy who just takes, you know, giant hacks and hits the ball a mile whenever he happens to connect. There's some real feel to hit there. I remember talking to some Potters officials after they drafted him. And one of the things they talked about was he had go through like dozens of pairs of batting gloves just from his cage work. He is always in the cage. He's always hitting. He's always working on his craft at the plate. He's never going to win a batting title, but he has a real chance to hit 250, 260 with 30, 35 home runs. I mean, it's huge power he can get to in games. And I think with him, it's just a case of he's similar to Triantis in that his defense is very rough coming from Canada. There's just not a lot of on-field play just because the weather doesn't allow it. So in the outfield, like he struggles with high fly balls. He's not comfortable catching them. He has a long way to go as a defender. But you talk about him and Triantis, two guys with big bats who there are some defensive questions about. Casey moved up to low A. He's further up the ladder. So that's ultimately what pushed him ahead. Also being left-handed and just the power he provides, it's it's pretty special. And Kevin Alcantara, there were a lot of iterations where Casey and Alcantara were right next to each other and different one above the other. Ultimately, I went Alcantara just because we would talk about with Trontus and Casey, big bats, maybe some defensive questions. Alcantara has a chance to be the most well-rounded of all three of these guys. You know, he's a big dude, but he moves really, really well in center field. It's a beautiful swing. It's easy, big power. Projecting the hitting ability, it's tough for all these guys. He's probably the biggest question in terms of how much contact he's going to make against upper-level pitching compared to Casey and Trantos right now. 
But if everything clicks, this is the guy you say, okay, what he can bring you offensively and defensively, uh, the total contributions have a chance to be highest. And ultimately that's what put him at the top of this group. And Jeff, I know you're a big fan of these youngins. What were your thoughts seeing some of them? Because again, it was fun for me to talk through a lot of these guys, watch some video on these guys and see some of these guys. But anytime you've got young players, you will get divergent opinions. What were your thoughts on this group of four guys? Yeah, and I would say that, you know, two of the four out of this group um, are players that had popped for me quite a bit in in uh, Casey and then Triantos. And I think part of it was just being more familiar. Um, Triantos was someone that seemed to pop a little bit in the draft process a little bit later. But everything that I had heard from folks that were in that sort of mid-Atlantic region um, was really high praise. He's really young for the class. Um, and just the innate, you know, feel to hit and and – you know, projectability in terms of power in the bat, uh, that got me pretty excited. Um, now, when I started digging a little bit more, and I had spoke with you as we were going through this, this top 10 and the top 30, um, I started to get more negative feedback in terms of the type of defender he was and that sort of thing. So I thought that was interesting. And it's also important, you know, to take a look here and say, hey, this isn't a fantasy list. We're not, we're looking at more than just the bat. The bat will obviously get you a job but we are trying to you know, look at the totality of the player and all the skills that they provide and supporting skills are important. Uh, the other one being Casey, and I was just blown away when I started to dig into some of the data after the season. Uh, I had seen some highlights. I had watched some games, but hadn't at, at a rate that I really felt comfortable having an evaluation. Looking at some of the data allowed me to go back. He has an innate sort of ability to control the strike zone, still you know, hit for we'll say, you know, projectable plus plus almost power. I mean, he has that sort of raw lumberjack kind of man strength and he's left-handed and there aren't a lot of guys that check all those boxes, you know, that aren't, you know, terribly bad free swingers, guys that chase a lot. Um, and I think Casey was able to balance all of that. I think there might even be some more projectability in the hit tool. I think you were hit the nail on the head when you said, this is a guy that could hit 250 or 260 and there might be, you know, on base ability supporting that as well. And I think when we look at the modern evaluation of, you know, a, a corner player, whether it's an outfielder or an infielder that hits for power, it's important to have that baseline of on-base ability um, just because there is going to be some swing and miss when you're hitting for power like that. Um, I wanted to jump into another really talented group of hitters here, if, if I could. I don't know if you had anything else uh, on that group, but did want to talk a little bit about the Myrtle Beach group. Panago, who you had mentioned before while talking about the best tools, uh, Kevin Made. And then Ed Howard, who was a first-round pick for them back in 2020. Uh, really talented group, but um, I'll say a little bit more of an unrefined group. Yeah, and this is where we talk about so many guys who in rookie ball are really, really exciting. But once they get into full-season ball, the competition gets better and guys get tested. And it's a little bit different with this group just because they didn't get a chance to play in rookie ball. So you look at guys like Kevin Mata and Ed Howard, who came in with similar amounts of hype, went up last year to Myrtle Beach and, and struggled a little bit. In some cases, struggled a lot. And, you know, it's just a jump in competition that all these guys are going to have to take into account. I, I want to start with Penyango. He can just flat out hit. I mean, you watch the swing and it's, it's exactly what it looks like when you want to see a good young left-handed hitter who's going to make a ton of contact I mean, this is what it looks like. It's the approach. It's the swing path. Uh, we're starting to see him pull the ball with authority a little more, but it's all fields. Power is not his game. It's not going to be his game, and it really shouldn't be his game. I think you're looking at a guy in that Nick Marcakis, Melky Cabrera mold, where 
hits for a high average, maybe gets you 10, 12, 15 homers. And it's just a good overall presence to have in your lineup. And you can win with those guys as everyday starters. So this is the guy that for me of this Myrtle Beach group really stood out. And you saw it statistically, the scouting reports came in. He's the guy who got a promotion and, you know, keep in mind the power numbers weren't great, but Myrtle Beach is where power goes to die. And it actually ticked up a little bit once he got up to South Bend. Uh, again, you know, walk to strikeout is solid. It's just a, it's just a really good package of a hitter. And it's always hard to put plus hit on a guy in, in the Class A levels. But you look at his swing, you look at the approach, you look at just everything he's done so far in his career, and, and what he projects to be. There's no reason this guy can't hit 280 as long as he continues progressing as he does, which on the modern scale is a plus hitter. You know, Made and Howard were trickier, and ultimately what you come down with the two of them is Made showed you bat-to-ball skills, the ability when there's a fastball in the zone to make contact. They actually did okay against breaking balls too. His biggest issue was just swinging at fastballs way out of the strike zone. He was chasing balls in his neck and, and bailing out the pitchers a lot, just swinging at pitches he had no business swinging at. But again... When he squared it up, the ball came off hot. He actually handled spin better than fastballs. And when he did get a fastball in the zone, he, he hit it hard. Defensively is, I think, where things really stood out. He was, in a lot of evaluators' eyes, close to as good as Ed Howard was at shortstop and really moved around the diamond effortlessly. I think sometimes we underestimate the challenges moving from shortstop to second to third. It's different footwork. It's different angles. It's different reads off the bat, especially for young players that take some time. I mean, he just made it look seamless. Every transition, he played every position he went to as, as a plus or better defender. Some people were putting seven defense, seven arm on him. So ultimately he came in ahead of Howard just because A, he outperformed him, but B, you just saw a little more there in terms of, hey, you know, multi-positional, there's some things he can do in the batter's box that give you some hope. He's just got to stop swinging at fastballs at his eyes. Ed Howard was one of the more difficult guys to evaluate this year simply because, just to be blunt about it, he was not ready to be at the level he was. Um, the Cubs sent him right out to low A. And you have to remember, this was a cold-weather high school kid who didn't have a senior season of high school, didn't get a chance to play in rookie ball, I mean, he really had not seen any real game action since he was a junior in high school in 2019, and he immediately goes out to full season ball in a very, very, very pitcher-friendly park, and then he got hurt earlier in the year. Uh, it just a lot of things spiraled on him, and watching some video early in the season, it, it was just clear he was just not ready to be at the level. He was not ready to see the level of pitching he was facing. They were facing Cole Wilcox, guys who were Friday night starters in the SEC, and it just it just was not a fair level of competition. So it was a really, really rough year. And what just makes it tough is, okay, how much do you kind of give him a pass? Because when a guy is at a level, he's just not ready to be at developmentally, of course he's going to struggle. So uh, the defense was still really, really good at shortstop. Again, he moved around the diamond as well and did pretty well there too. So there's hope there. At the same time, there's no such thing as a utility infielder floor. If you look at the guys who are utility infielders in the major leagues, they all hit the minors. So there's going to have to be a lot of progress offensively 
He's going to have to go back to Myrtle Beach next year. I don't see how you can send him up to South Bend. I think next year, seeing where he is offensively will be more indicative of, okay, this is his real talent level. Just because, again, he, he just wasn't ready to be at the level he was last year. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, I was interested to ask a little bit about Ed Howard for that reason. And I, I think there is, you know, a bit of a mulligan that he's maybe due for this year just because of what the situation was. And it was so unusual um, and sort of the point that he was at pre-draft anyway, it was a very aggressive assignment. Uh, you got to hope that he took his lumps this year, learned from it, and uh, continues to develop next year. And we see a better version that's a little bit more prepared for full season ball. Um, wanted to ask about one more guy here that I thought was pretty interesting. I got a good look at him while I was out uh, at the Arizona Fall League and in the AFL uh, Fall Stars game. Uh, and that's Nelson Velasquez. He was a name that initially, you know, uh, getting drafted, I believe, out of Puerto Rico, um, had some interest, had a little bit of helium, and kind of fell off the radar for a couple of years, even during the season, despite the fact that he had a pretty good year. Um, popped, had some really loud games and performances at the Fall League. What's sort of uh, his outlook for the next year, and how does he rank in the system? Yeah, Nelson Velasquez is a really interesting prospect here just because he's someone who is trending up after trending down. So I want to go back. The Cubs drafted him out of Puerto Rico, and all the tools that were in his pre-draft scouting report as soon as he got into pro ball, they weren't there. The speed wasn't there. The athleticism wasn't there. The hitting ability wasn't there. I know a lot of people at Cubs player development were like, the report that I saw that I thought we were getting is not this player. I mean, the Cubs internally were very, very, very down on him for the better part of two years. 2019 at South Bend, you started to see flashes of, okay, maybe something's coming back. Maybe he's figured something out here. He was starting to move a little better. We saw some of the power start to show up. The hitting ability start to show up. He was limited by injury, but I actually thought that his 2019 season went a little under the radar as, you know what, something might be clicking here. So then he loses the 2020 season, came back in 2021, and, and this was a breakout year. And it was interesting talking to Cubs officials and even opposing evaluators throughout the year. Early on, I was like, yeah, you know, it's a nice start, but but I want to see how it lasts. And he just kept doing it and doing it. And you really saw and heard this, this increased buy-in throughout the course of the year. He was able to make adjustments, do a much better job staying on fastballs. Everything just kept trending up. He actually started playing center field and, and did a pretty decent job out there. I mean, all the things that were a problem before, he, he started fixing. And all of a sudden, you look at a guy who, hey, he's actually using the whole field now and staying on good fastballs and has a better swing plane. And he's showing he can actually stand in center field. And it really culminated in the fall league for him to go out and win MVP of the fall league. And, and one of the things you have to keep in mind is the pitching of the AFL this year was to be charitable, bad. Um, you'll hear plenty of evaluators tell you it was the worst they've ever seen in the fall league in 15, 20 years of scouting it. So you do want to be a little careful there just scouting the stat line at the same time, everyone was facing the same pitching and he was the guy who performed best against it. So He's not in the top 10 because there's still some skepticism of, okay, how much contact is he really going to make against major league pitching? He does struggle with secondary stuff, even during the fall league. Uh, there was not a lot of good spin in the fall league. And I was at some of the games where he did see good spin and he struggled pretty badly with it. And that's something that's going to have to be addressed. But you still see a guy who is 
still fairly young. He just turned 23 in December, who hit up through double A this year, has tools, performed well in the fall league. And again, it's more the trend. Everything seems to be getting better. Everything seems to be trending up. Where all of a sudden, the Cubs do see him as a guy who, again, you won't find a whole lot of people who think he's an everyday major leaguer just because some of the swing and miss and and how much contact is he going to make, that's still a question. But he now has a potential role. Maybe it's that fourth outfielder who starts two times a week and comes off the bench later for ideal pitching matchups. And I think just the fact that he even projects to be a major leaguer is just so far beyond where he was two years ago, where officials both internally and externally were like, yeah, this is a blown pick. Testament to him for putting in the work. And uh, I'm really curious to see what he does next year. Probably starts back at double A, gets up to triple A. Because again, he just kind of keeps proving people wrong and, and getting better. And if he can make another jump and start handling that secondary stuff better then you know what, we might be looking at an everyday guy. Yeah. And there's some loud tools there. I mean, the bat speed was as good as anybody that I saw in the, in, in the fall league in the fall stars game, he does still struggle with spin. Um, but there's certainly a place for a guy that, you know, has the ability to catch up to premium velocity. I think he could. So a uh, guy to watch over the next year, really interesting name. Um, so we sort of wrap things up here a little bit. I wanted to sort of shoot it back to you. We've gone through the top 10. We've touched on some of the talented players that are outside the top 10. What's the biggest goal for the system here in 2022 as we look forward with the Cubs? Yeah. So as we've talked about so much is riding on this farm system and how these guys are able to progress and get up to the major leagues. And one thing that was sort of a, we talked about all the good things that happened for the Cubs system this year, again, adding a lot of talent, a lot of guys took steps forward, particularly on the pitching side, but a lot of guys missed time with injuries. Braylon Marquez, we talked about missed the whole season. Pete Crow Armstrong, his injury happened in the Mets system, but nonetheless, he's another guy who didn't get to play. Miguel Amaya had Tommy John surgery. Cole Franklin and Riley Thompson didn't pitch all year. Chris Clark missed most of the season. You had Tommy John surgeries for Michael McAveen and Jack Patterson, all pitchers who had promise. There were just a lot of injuries in the Cubs system last year. So I think the biggest thing and most important thing moving into 2022 is these guys getting healthy and staying healthy because a system with a healthy Braylon Marquez, a healthy Pete Crow Armstrong, Amaya is going to miss the whole year. But if Cole Franklin and Riley Thompson are able to come back healthy, if Chris Clark can hold up, all of a sudden this system, there's some star power, there's some depth, and, and things really start to look much brighter for the Cubs. But if Braylon Marquez's shoulder injury continues to hamper him, if Pete Crow Armstrong isn't the same player coming off of his labrum surgery, if Franklin and Thompson and Clark and, and all these guys struggle to stay on the mound, it becomes a lot dicier. So I think the biggest subplot of the 2022 season for the Cubs organization is the health of the guys in this system. Obviously, the progression, seeing how these talented players in rookie ball make the jump to full season ball, how these guys who maybe struggle in low A are able to adjust to high A next year or even if they're back at low A, those are all important things. But I think when you look at this farm system, the health of these guys is number one just because so many guys missed so much time this year. And that's going to have a direct effect on how quickly the Cubs can realistically get back into playoff contention. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here before we wrap up. Um, let's, let's do it. I'm ready for one, you. One player, 20 to 40, because we're doing the extra 10s now uh, in the handbook. Is there one player there that pops out to you that could be a player that, hey, I could be talking about this guy in the top half of the system next year? 
Yeah, Drew Gray, who was their third round draft pick this year. And I actually want to take this a step back. So when I did the Cubs handbook in 2020, talking to player development officials in the Cubs organization, the name that kept coming up as, you know what, put this guy in the 20 to 30 range and don't be surprised if he pops next year. That guy was DJ Hers. And the Cubs were absolutely 100% correct about that. And I stuck him in the back of the list in that 20 to 30 range. Again, he was someone that was a good athlete, left-handed, you know, had stuff, control questions, uh, had shown some promise in the Cubs pitching lab before the shutdown, went out this year and dominated. Drew Gray is, is kind of similar. It's the same type of deal of, hey, young lefty, good athlete. There's control questions there, but it's very much a similar package to DJ Hers in a lot of ways. And Hers now in the top 10. So Gray went out this year, got some innings under his belt after being drafted, really the thing that stands out about him, he's a great athlete, started as both an outfielder and a pitcher, was set to play both ways in college at Arkansas before the Cubs drafted him. High spin fastball with velo that gets swings and misses. High spin downer curveball. He also has a decent slider. Changeup needs work, but that's the same with a lot of high school pitchers. The stuff is there, 6'3", 190, room to fill out. It's just, you know, the delivery isn't always repeated and there's bouts of below average control, but you can see a scenario where as he just kind of fills out and gets stronger and more coordinated, body control improves and, and with that, some velocity improvements. And I think there's a chance this guy could really pop similar to how we saw DJ Hurst pop last year. And from there, if he's able to join this group, we talked about this Cubs group of Braylon Marquez and Jordan Wicks and Caleb Killian and DJ Hurst, it's the most talented group of pitching prospects I think the Cubs have had in some time in their system. And it would not shock me if next year we're talking about Drew Gray in that same group. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it was uh, well stated that he was a two-way guy, spent one year at IMG Academy, and was a cold-weather prospect out of, out of, you know, the Cubs' backyard in Illinois. I believe Swansea, Illinois is his hometown. But, uh, Kyle, that was a really interesting uh, dive into the Cubs system here. Um, anything else that you wanted to touch on here in the last 10% before we wrap stuff up? I think just the, the final thing I'll say is uh, the Cubs – there is a lot of talent in this system now. We at Baseball America do the exercise where we project the starting lineup four years out. And I remember doing the Cubs system in 2020 and you're filling out what's this lineup going to look like in four or five years. And I ran out of viable names at certain positions just because you knew some guys were probably going to leave in free agency. Some guys were going to age out and they just didn't have players to fill some of these spots. They, they just didn't have them in the system Fast forward to doing that exercise this year, and I'm choosing between a lot of really good candidates and trying to you know, put together some lineup machinations just to get guys in the lineup. And I think to me, that was sort of the representation of how much more talent is in the system this year compared to even last year and let alone you know, years before that. And again, it's come at the expense of the major league team is struggling, but it was after one of the best runs in franchise history, it's cyclical, this happens, and now it's just time to build it back up. I do think having Jed Hoyer at the top, having successfully done it once is certainly encouraging. Uh, Bringing in Carter Hawkins and and his track record of helping develop pitching effectively is something that will help the Cubs. So I do think the infrastructure is in place. I do think the talent is in place for this rebuild to work. Cubs fans just need to be patient. This is going to take some time. Again, we saw them bring in Marcus Stroman and Wade Miley this year. They're taking a chance on Clint Frazier. So, you know, the major league team in the meantime, they might find ways to, to stay respectable and stay competitive. But for this group of talent to rise to the top, it's all in place. 
I think Cubs fans are just going to need to be patient. It's going to take some time, but it's there. Well, there's the silver lining on the rebuild for Cubs fans. There is some reason for optimism, even if it's just foundational at this point. A lot has changed uh, in Wrigleyville. But Kyle, wanted to thank you very much for joining me here today. All the listeners as well. This is another Baseball America podcast. <laughs>